thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, gaimerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. Good morning. Um, the Bible reading today comes from Matthew 16, 13 to 20. Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of, hev- of the, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Thank you, Fiona. Good morning. It's good to have you with us. It's, uh, it's nice and cool in here. Uh, It's not going to be very cool when you step outside. Uh, My two younger daughters are playing soccer this morning, Um, so hopefully they're hydrated and all those things. Uh, We tend not to make very many personal announcements on kind of a Sunday morning in terms of kind of picking people out of the congregation, uh, if only because it's hard to then draw the line on what you say and what you don't say. But every so often, there's something fairly significant that takes place. Uh, And uh, this past Wednesday, Joy and Wally Wood celebrated their 65th wedding anniversary. Which I reckon is worth mentioning. Uh, and so, you know, next time any of you get to 65, let me know and we'll mention that as well. Uh, it, is, it is always difficult to figure out what do you say and what don't you say. Uh, there's lots of stuff to talk about, lots of good things happening. But I uh, bumped into Wally. He was here on Wednesday morning. He's one of the Wednesday boys. Uh, some retired uh, gentleman who uh, takes some time on a Wednesday morning just to help kind of maintain the building. They do an enormous amount of work for us. And he was here bright and early uh, and then uh, told me that he was off to take his wife on a date. So I hope it was good, Joy. <laughs> Yeah, it's better than kind of drilling something or, you know, hedge, hedge cleaning or whatever it was that you normally do. It was fantastic. Uh, it's, uh, it's good to have you here this morning as we continue to look through this, uh, through the series in Matthew's gospel wrapped around what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, you're probably familiar with the term paradigm shift. Right? It was a, a, a phrase that was first coined by a fellow named Tom, Thomas Kuhn in the 60s. It was originally designed to talk about the a fundamental shift in basic concepts and practices of a scientific discipline. Uh, so think about the Copernican uh, revolution where we stopped seeing the earth as a center of the universe and changed to the sun. Uh, not that we changed because we wanted to, but because of the science behind it. And that just changed everything in relationship to how we understood the, ga- the universe and the galaxy. Uh, that then term, paradigm shift, began to be used in just about any area where there was a similar fundamental shift. Uh, So whether you were talking about science, 
science or the humanities, you could talk about these paradigm shifts in our society. So think about the Industrial Revolution, or more frequently, the Digital Revolution, uh, and how it's completely changed the basic concepts of how we go about living our lives and doing things and seeing things. Uh, and uh, Stephen Covey of uh, seven, highly, seven Habits of Highly Effective People fame, uh, he defines paradigms as mental maps that determine how we perceive, understand, and interpret the world. And there are times in our lives when we have these paradigm shifts, aren't there? When all of a sudden we see things quite differently. Uh, maybe you have been to some sort of presentation that's been talking about paradigm shifts or the need to see things in a new light, and you've seen those dual images. There's one image where if you look at it in a particular way, it looks like an elderly lady kind of with a shawl, and if you look at it slightly differently, it's a young woman with a hat on top of her hair. Or there's another famous one that looks like a duck or a rabbit, depending on how you view the picture. And the idea is that you need to kind of see it differently. It's the same picture. Nothing changes, just the way in which we approach it. To some degree, the passage that we're looking at today represents the beginning of the most significant paradigm shift in the gospel. And Jesus has been traveling around with his disciples, and they've been slowly but surely beginning to understand who he is and what he's on about, but there's an enormous shift that still has to take place in their thinking. Uh, and uh, this shift takes place, shall I say, in two parts. Uh, part of what we looked at today, and then part of what we'll look at in a couple of weeks' time. But I want to kind of explore uh, some of what Jesus has to say and the implications for the community of faith in particular, and to kind of set up what we're looking at in the future. So if you have your Bibles with you and want to keep it open to uh, Matthew chapter 16, we'll be looking at this passage in a little bit of detail. Uh, Jesus has traveled to the region of Caesarea Philippi. It's about 40 kilometers north of the Sea of Galilee. And the kind of the important thing to note about Caesarea Philippi is it's solidly Gentile territory. Uh, it seems that Jesus has perhaps retreated a little bit uh, to be with his disciples away from the large crowds that normally followed him uh, in the region of Judea. And, and on the way, he asks his disciples this really critical question, who do people say that I am? Now, he uses his favorite self-designation, the Son of Man, uh, a designation that comes probably from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where one like a Son of Man receives authority and dominion from the Ancient of Days. Uh, it's Jesus' favorite title for himself. It seems to have implied um, not only his, his position in the, in the plans and purposes of God, but it didn't seem to have the messianic baggage uh, that was often associated with other terms. Nonetheless, he says, who do people say that I am? That's the critical part of it. And Matthew's gospel has kind of been driving at this question for a while, hasn't it? From the very beginning, from the genealogy, from the magi who show up, from the, the fulfillments of prophecies, to the miracles, to the teaching, there's this ongoing question, who, who is this man? Who is Jesus? And so Jesus asks the question, forces, the, forces a bit of a crisis, and his disciples answer with kind of an odd sort of list. Now keep in mind that Jews don't believe in reincarnation. Uh, so they were not asking, they were not saying that you are the reincarnation of John the Baptist or Elijah or whoever it might be. They're essentially asking, or he's essentially asking, who do I remind people of, if that makes some sense? 
So you're familiar with, uh, if, if you watch any sport, often uh, current athletes who are doing great things are compared to great athletes in the same sport of a previous age or era, right? And so a particular individual, an athlete, will have their statistics compared to someone who played in the past, uh, and uh, we'll talk about how they are reminiscent of. Or they'll talk about the certain style of play. And this is true not just in athletics, but in, uh, in artists uh, or in leaders. We're reminded of a certain visionary quality or an entrepreneurial quality or an ability to lead or to handle conflict, whatever it might be. Jesus is asking, so when people talk about me and my ministry, the significance of my ministry, who do they compare me to? And, and the list, you'd have to say, is pretty impressive, right? They start with John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist's ministry, we kind of, we kind of uh, miss the significance of it because he's you know, living in the desert, wearing camel skin, and uh, kind of eating bugs. And we kind of think, yeah, that's, that's a ministry, I suppose, no longer at work in the church. We're pretty happy about that part. But John, John was a really big deal. In fact, in Luke chapter 3 and in John chapter 1, the religious leaders come to John and they ask him, are you the Messiah? So his ministry was so significant, so, um, so big in that sense, that they were actually forced to ask, are you the one to come? In both cases, John says, no, I'm not the one to come. I'm the one uh, kind of introducing the one to come. Keep an eye out because he's coming soon. Uh, they talk about Elijah, who we looked at last week. Uh, someone who ministered powerfully in a period of apostasy, the presence and power of God, uh, who... Uh, performed the miraculous unlike just about any other character in the Old Testament. They talk about Jeremiah, who ministered in another critical period of time for the people of God, uh, prophesying both judgment but also hope. It was Jeremiah who talked about the 70 years of the exile and uh, for, whom, for which Daniel rather found great hope but also then reflected deeply on the significance of. Now, i got to say that if you were kind of compared, if you, if you said, you know, if, if you asked me, what does my ministry look like? And I said, oh, it reminds me of John the Baptist, you know, uh, Elijah, Jeremiah. I'd be, I'd be pretty content with that if someone said that your ministry reminds me of those people. Like, I'd be pretty happy. I think I'd probably retire, actually, and kind of go, I must be done, right? Uh, you know, to say that, yes, my ministry was that of Elijah, power, presence, uh, unbelievable ability to declare the word of the, of the Lord in a, in, a, in a critical period of time. And this is a, a good list. It puts Jesus in elite company. But these were the Jewish paradigms of a prophet. These are the paradigms that they had to, to talk about people. When they talked about Jesus, they, they didn't talk about superheroes, right? They didn't talk about the, the great men uh, or women of Greek mythology. They spoke about the prophets. That, that's all they really had. But none of these paradigms are even really quite adequate, are they? And we know that just from kind of reading through the story, don't we? I mean, Matthew has presented Jesus, and for, in terms of his teaching, on par with Moses. We've already looked last week at his uh, miraculous healings and noted that Jesus heals more people of more things than anyone else. I mean, Elijah's ministry pales into signif in, in, in significance in the light of what Jesus does. Jesus demands a, a new paradigm, something very, very different. And so it is that when Jesus presses them, right, and says, but who do you say that I am? We get the first inclination of something new. And now remember that these men had followed Jesus. They had been with him most, uh, most of the time. 
Uh, they had seen his miracles uh, up close. They had witnessed the change in lives. They had heard his teaching. They'd been the closest to him, spent the most time. We don't know how long at this point in time, but significant amounts. And Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? We're not surprised when Peter speaks. Peter always seems to speak. Uh, he's uh, one of the leaders of the apostles. It was his house they met in, in Capernaum. He was the first apostle that was named and called by Jesus. It's Peter who walks on the water. It's Peter who asks Jesus to explain the parables. It's, Je it's Peter who is approached by the Jewish leaders who have a question about Jesus' practice. It's Peter who is, along with James and John, with Jesus at key moments in his ministry. So it's not that surprising that Peter speaks up, and his response is, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And here we have a bit of a new paradigm. It's not actually as new as we might think, though. Jesus will go on in uh, the, the following section, which we'll look at in the next couple of weeks, to radically redefine their paradigm of Messiahship. Uh, they thought a Messiah looked like this, and Jesus basically says, no, it looks like this. It's a completely different thing that, that you think I am. It's a different identity to who I am. But nonetheless, as I was reading through this section and uh, what Jesus kind of goes on to talk about, I was struck by the fact that what Jesus talks about first is actually the community that is formed around this confession. Did you notice that? That Jesus doesn't begin after Peter says, you're the Christ, by saying, yes, I am. Now, let me clarify what that means. He actually starts initially by talking about the community of faith founded on that confession. And this, in and of itself, is a bit of a paradigm shift or could be a paradigm shift for how we understand what it is that we're on about even today as the church. So let me have a bit of a look at this paradigm shift, this community that Jesus goes on to talk about. So in verse 17, Jesus replies to Peter's confession and says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And so what we see first, first and foremost is that the community that Jesus is going to go on to talk about is one that is not only founded on the confession of Jesus, but is also one founded on divine revelation. And that's a fairly important starting point. You think about just about any organization or any movement in our world, and they are founded by human figures. And eventually, that human figure dies, don't they? They all die eventually. And what happens is that the followers, the disciples, the, the ones who believe, the ones who had put that into place are left behind to try to continue the work, to interpret the original vision, uh, and to try to somehow implement that vision beyond the death of the founder. You've heard of organizational drift? Right? Organizations, after about 100 years or so, just kind of drift a little bit away from their original core vision. That's in part because the person who started it is no longer around to keep it on track. And partially because the people who follow after aren't able to implement the vision in a new, fresh way demanded by the new, fresh circumstances. This is what happens to nearly all organizations and movements in our world. But the church is different. Because the church has a founder who is not and never will be 
dead. The founder of our movement is actually our heavenly Father and the divine revelation of Jesus Christ. And because God is still alive, we believe He is still active and at work. And therefore, while we are engaged in the work of interpretation and implementation of the original vision of Jesus, we do not do so on our own. We do so through the ongoing presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That's a bit of a paradigm shift, isn't it? This is the community that Jesus initially begins to speak about. Now, now can I just say that a community has been kind of on the cards all the way through Matthew's gospel. You know, one of the, the things that we often bring to this reading of Scripture is a very intense individuality, don't we? Uh, we read Scripture on our own often. Uh, this is what makes uh, gathered worship kind of unique. We read Scripture together, which is, I think, a really helpful thing. But we often bring a very individualized approach to Scripture. And we think about our confession of faith. We think about uh, the things that we believe about Jesus. And yet, Jesus was always going to establish a community of faith. This is implied, first of all, by the fact that no Messiah worth his salt would then leave without establishing a messianic community. What's the point of saying you've got the best thing in the world and not actually convincing anybody else that that's the case? If you truly are the one to come, if you truly are the one to usher in the kingdom of God, then surely you would leave a community of faith behind. But it's also implied in the fact that Jesus names and calls to himself 12 apostles. If you know your Old Testament in any way, shape, or form, you might be aware that there are 12 tribes of Israel. And so the apostles are meant to, shall we say, represent a new Israel. So this has always been on the cards, and yet Jesus has said very, very little about what this community of faith is going to look like. And I find it interesting that it's after this confession that we first hear Jesus talks explicitly about the community of faith, and also that he talks about this community of faith in Caesarea Philippi. Remember, I mentioned that at the outset. 40 kilometers north of the Sea of Galilee in Gentile territory. He doesn't talk about a community of faith that is founded in Jerusalem or founded around the temple. He is almost, well, he's, he's as far away as Jesus ever gets from the center of Judaism in the Gospels. And that's when he talks about this community of faith, which I think is particularly significant because of what he goes on to say. In verse 18, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, I should probably point out that as Protestants, uh, we would disagree with our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters about the significance of Peter. Uh, we would acknowledge that he is indeed the leader of the apostles, but we would uh, kind of question the Roman Catholic belief that the church is built on Peter rather than on the confession. Thus, uh, the Pope is the kind of the spiritual successor of uh, Peter, and he ministers at St. Peter's, uh, and he has all the authority in the Roman Catholic Church. Maybe that makes sense of the Roman Catholic Church for you in some way that you didn't realize before. We believe that it's the confession here uh, that is most significant rather than the individual, which invites all of us into it. But I want you to notice who it is that this community of faith is, shall I say, pitted against. Because the community of faith that Jesus is building is not one that is simply there to resist the uh, oppression of Rome. 
It's not a geopolitical kingdom that is set against the Roman world or against any uh, nation on earth, past, present, or future. Nor is it some sort of spiritual community set apart for the spiritually pure against the religious establishment or against those who have compromised in one way, shape, or form. Did you notice the enemy that is named? The gates of Hades. The gates of the realm of the dead. Well, that's different, isn't it? And that escalated kind of quickly, didn't it? Who do people say that I am? Well, I'm establishing a community that will take on the realm of the dead. Oh, okay, are you? Now, we can kind of look ahead. If we know the end of the story, we know that Jesus himself, of course, takes on the realm of the dead in a very significant and dramatic way. But here in this point, in this case, we see that the community of faith is, is, is characterized primarily as a community where life is. If you're going to draw together the two great comparisons, right, you've got light and you've got dark, you've got life and you have death, and it is against death that the community of faith, the church, is pitted. In fact, the language actually suggests that while the gates of Hades will not overcome the church, we are at the gates of Hades. Who is besieging who? Now that casts the community of faith into a very different light, doesn't it? We are those who are founded by God, the living God, the active God, and where He is, there is life. And the community that we are called into on the basis of this confession of faith is a community that is essentially about life. And it is about the universal problems of the world, isn't it? It's not about the problems of the Jewish religion. It's not actually the problems of religion per se. It's the problems that our world faces in every single circumstance and situation. Because death permeates nearly all that we do. Not only in terms of our physical aging and decline, but in terms of relationships, in terms of hopes and dreams and aspirations and strength and justice, and righteousness. It seems that death infects everything, and the community of faith that Jesus is establishing is one that is set against those powers. Not just nations, not just politics, not just spiritual forces, but death itself changes a little bit about what we might think about what we're doing here this morning, doesn't it? We were never meant to be the the morality police. We've got something much bigger to deal with. Issues of life and death. We were never founded, as Jesus says here, shall we say, purely on the teaching, the ethical teaching of Jesus, though there are implications for how we ought to live our lives. We are based on the divine revelation of the ever-active God in opposition to all the forces that seek to unravel life in our world. That is the community that Jesus seeks to establish. And then on top of all of that, Jesus adds these words. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Uh, this, this too uh, would fall into some of the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that we would probably have some disagreements about. But this authority that Jesus is giving to those who follow after him is a fairly significant authority. 
I think about keys even today. We might talk about swipe cards and fobs and whatnot, but keys still uh, convey and imply authority, don't they? Because I have access to certain areas of a building, that implies that I have an authority to access those, right? Access implies that. Well, these are the same kinds of principles that are at work here. Now, the keys of the kingdom, this binding and loosing, seem to be associated with the power of forgiveness. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, in chapter 18 of Matthew, uh, Jesus talks about how to deal with sin in the church. Uh, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, then treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The context is wrapped around this forgiveness, particularly in the life of the church. But if you go back even to Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is talking about prayer, at the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, he says in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 6, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive yours. Here we have another kind of inclination of this forgiving piece, this binding and loosing. Now, let me be very clear here. The authority to forgive ultimately resides with God, doesn't it? That's that's not our authority to uh, have in an ultimate or final kind of sense. But Jesus here, it seems very, very clearly, invites us to participate in a very significant way, in a very significant way, in the ministry of invitation to that forgiveness and through that forgiveness into life. I mean, I'm not sure if you've ever claimed some of these kinds of promises or authority to say, Lord Jesus, in your name, in your name, is it possible that there might be forgiveness extended to another? But but that's seemingly what Jesus is implying here, isn't it? This is radical authority. Ultimately, the authority resides with God, but we have been invited into this in a very significant way because the community of faith is bound by the founder's vision of life. And life necessitates forgiveness and the freedom that comes therein. And we have been invited not just to be those who have experienced that, praise God, hallelujah, but to those who are also called to invite people to participate in that and become part of the living community of faith. You see how this is a bit of a paradigm shift? This is not the kind of kingdom that the the disciples were anticipating. This is much, much grander. And it's often much grander than the opinion and view that we have about the church as well. As I said, we'll look in the weeks to come uh, at how Jesus takes the more immediate paradigm of being the Messiah and changes that quite dramatically. But for now, let me ask you, what are the implications of this for our following after Jesus? I think there are a few. I think, first of all, what we believe about Jesus is central. 
That's central. And I don't just mean that it's kind of the first and foremost thing, but it's, it's kind of the only thing. We so easily divide over things that aren't about Jesus, don't we? Well, some of you live through this stuff. Churches that split over all sorts of great things. You know, sometimes it's, you know, worship style. Sometimes it's the color of the carpet, right? You get all sorts of wonderful church dynamics wrapped around things that have nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus is central. But can I also remind you that if Jesus is central, then that's really the question that we have to be asking people. Because if anyone can begin to follow Jesus, if anyone can begin, regardless of faith or behavior or understanding, begin to follow Jesus, right? then the question we need to be asking people is not, what church do you go to, or what do you believe about X, Y, or Z, but who do you say Jesus is? This becomes the critical piece. Do you understand Jesus yet? How are you going with uh, the, the questions that you have about Jesus? But also, notice that Jesus forces the crisis. I've been talking about this since the very beginning of this series. Anyone can begin to follow Jesus. You don't have to believe in Jesus to begin to follow him. If you're here this morning and you don't believe Jesus yet, but you're trying to figure him out, good on you. Please continue to do that here. We love that. You don't have to know much about the Bible to begin to follow Jesus. You don't even have to change your behavior to begin to follow Jesus. But know this, that the longer you begin to follow Jesus, the sooner you are going to come to a crisis of faith. And Jesus is the one who instigates the crises. Because he says things like this. I'm establishing a community that's not about religion. It's actually about the, the, the principle of life as found in God over and against everything that represents death. Are you in? Because if you are, this is what you need to believe about me. So by all means, by all means, begin to follow and explore Jesus. But know this, the crisis is coming. But for those of us uh, who have come to that crisis and have placed our faith in Jesus, can I just make a few points about what it means to be part of the community of faith? First of all, it means that being part of the community of faith is not an option. It's a necessity. I met someone just the other week at something, some other event, uh, and uh, I asked him, you know, what church yet? Uh, it was in the context where that was an appropriate question to ask. And he said, oh, I'm not going to church. And he says, I haven't gone for about four or five years. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm thinking I might just kind of get back into it, but I don't know. And it's just troubled me all week long. It just troubled me. What, what do you mean you're not part of a church? That's just, that's ludicrous. You're making a decision that is ultimately going to take you away from faith. Hear me now, believe me later, but that's what's going to happen. Because can I also say that involvement in the church then is much more than attending church. Attending church isn't what Jesus calls us to. Attending church does not set us against the realm of the dead. Participation in, in the community of faith is so much more than what we do here, although this is important. It's about our engagement in the vision that we have been given to actually invite people into life. And this invitation of life and forgiveness through the authority granted by Jesus ought to shape the way in which we engage with our world. That's who we're called to. 
And I think for those of you who are beginning to follow Jesus, there's enough in there to kind of get you, know, kind of help you towards your crisis. But for those of us who have passed through that crisis of faith, I think there's enough in here to start spark a second one, isn't there? Are we participating in all that Jesus hoped to establish in this community of faith based on the confession that He is the Son of the living God, the one to come? Well, we'll keep exploring it. The story's not done. I'm really loving this series because I don't have to finish any sermon. I can just kind of get to the end and say there's more to come. And there is more to come. We have much more to explore. But can I just remind you as you head out the door this morning... Over those doors, as you leave, it says, As the Father sent me, I am sending you. Those are not my words. They're not the words of our leadership team. They're not the words of some great human individual. They are the words of Jesus himself to each and every one of you. And if you pass through those doors, remember what you've been called into.